Morning. What up? <laughs> I found this backstage. It holds your notes. So amazing. Uh, welcome to CCB, Christian Church Buckhead, your seasonal uptown solution to the Advent season. So welcome. Good to see you. Um, my name is Derek, and I'm the pastor here. And did anybody, by the way, before we get into this, did anybody uh, pick up the Advent reading schedule from last week and even give it a shot this week? We, uh, thank you, the guy, soundboard. Um, it's depressing, isn't it? When you open up Isaiah, and it's like the first text of the Christmas season compares us to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, man. So stay with us. Stay with us. Um, yeah. All right. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, we have a lot to do. I'm, I'm going to kind of do this old school and just move through the text piece uh, by piece, which is why I have all my stuff right here in front of me. And um, I want to show you where we're headed. Uh, where we're headed today it comes from uh, chapter 2 of Luke, verse 14. This is kind of the finish line today, so I want to start with it, and then we'll back up and get there. This is the message to the shepherds, the night in the fields that Christ is born. And the message to the shepherds was, as it says on the screen, I think, yes, glory to God in the highest and on earth. What's the word? Peace. Let's try it again. Peace. That's our topic today. To men on whom his favor rests. Now, the way the language reads on whom his favor rests is that's everybody, all of them, every person. Peace on earth sometimes is how it's read. So we have this statement about the kind of Savior, the kind of baby that has been born. It's this bringer of peace, and on earth will be peace through Him. Now, it gets its, uh, the beginnings of this idea that Christ brings peace it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, it says this in verse 6, for, us, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And on the government will, uh, and the government will be on his shoulders. That's very profound. In fact, Luke will hit on this in a moment. But just look at that phrase: the birth of the child, given to the world, and it's on his shoulders that the government's weight rests. We often vote and put all the weight. This is why the president's hair turns gray in a month, because he feels what the people have given him to do. So this is quite subversive. God says to his people, actually, I'll take it. And he will be called, and here's next year's series, I think, four different things, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and what? The prince of peace. So the message given to the shepherds is that somehow through the birth of this baby, peace comes to the world. And what I'm interested in today is engaging with the idea, or at least engaging with the promise that God gives us that somehow through this baby, that through the birth of Jesus, that peace comes to the earth. And the message is about the earth, the world, its people. That's what it's getting at here. And so uh, for the shepherds in the field, God declares that this is that through his son there will be this kind of peace and that the birth of this child is somehow the bringer of peace. Uh, it's, it's out now. It was kind of on the rumor floor for a while, and I think partly because I posted something uh, on my Facebook about how I, I passed the drug test. Um, 
<laughs> but we, I, my wife and I, we have a son that's nine, but we're adopting, we're in the process of adopting as well, because we thought, eh, let's have a one-year-old and a nine-year-old, that'll be fun. Um, <laughs> so, because he can change the diapers. <laughs> Although he won't clean up the dog's mess, I can't imagine he's going to do. Anyway, all right. Um, oh, and by the way, um, it almost didn't happen because I'm in the, in the drug testing center, and, which is quite awkward. So when things are awkward, I just say things that also are awkward. And <laughs> the lady said, you know, she's going through this speech, and she's like this, 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 this. She says, do you have anything in your pockets? And I said as quickly as she asked it, uh, just some change in a Ziploc bag of my friend's urine. <laughs> and she, because people have asked, what did she do? She did this. And so I'm standing there going, make it, make it stop, make it go back, take it back, take it back, take it back, take it back. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> he just said urine in the sermon. Okay. Um, so anyway, we're in the process of adopting. There's another couple in the church that's going through this. They're about six weeks ahead of us. It was interesting. They invited us over for dinner one night, we have some news for you. And we said, oh, it's cool, because we have some news for you, too. Uh, this is sort of like Mary and Elizabeth, you know, like, you're, you're, I'm, you're pregnant? I'm pregnant? Although we're not pregnant. But so we sat down, and they said, well, we are adopting. And we said, well, we are, too. And it was like, what? well, this is not exciting anymore. <laughs> uh, so we've been kind of following them. They're about six weeks ahead of us, you know, talking about how the fingerprints went and the drug testing went. It's been fun. But all that to say this, it's been an amazing journey and a process. And I assure you that my wife and I have no visions of and no mistaken ideas that the baby entering our home will bring any sort of peace. It's just not going to happen. It's stressful. Because when the new baby comes, it, it will shake the foundations of the rhythm that we've been living with for so many years. Again, we already have a nine-year-old, so we, we do know that the sleepless nights, they don't give way to peace. They, they sort of change hands with more complex problems as the child grows older. So there might be peace in being a parent, but there's no peace in raising a child. And so, the, so I say all that to say, when God says on earth will be peace, there has to be the kind of peace that God is talking about has to be different. And what I'm interested in today is for us to somehow engage with that and explore uh, perhaps what that means. But I think to do so, you've got to back up. Verse 1 says, this is how Luke begins the narrative, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the what? The entire Roman world. So before we even get to the manger scene, Luke takes the readers and the listeners all the way back to a picture of what the world was like when Jesus was born. And the key words, if you look in the text, they're right there on the screen, the key words are uh, Caesar Augustus, there's a decree, a census that he had issued, and this really is a description of more about this is the kind of things that he put into place, that everybody had to do this, of the entire Roman world. So this is, again, you have to sort of notice those key phrases, because in this short riff, what Luke does is introduce to us the historical, the economic, the religious, the social situation of the world at that time. And so he starts with this man, 
Augustus. I'm sure you've probably heard of this guy before. Uh, he's the adopted son, interestingly enough, of uh, Julius Caesar, whom was considered divine. Now, Augustus was also considered divine, although he did not consider himself divine. And the titles given to him in his reign of Savior and so forth, they may or may not have mattered to him, but he did recognize the divinity of his own father, and he allowed himself to be called, quote-unquote, the Son of God. Because if your dad is divine and you are his child, then you are the Son of a God. Uh, Augustus was called Savior, and he was seen as the one who brought peace to the world. But history is clear. The peace that um, Augustus brought to the world was not done peacefully. It was done by force. And so it's kind of a peace. Uh, There's peace because we're very afraid kind of thing. Interestingly enough, in the days of Jesus, the fastest growing religion was not some non-denominational church with hip music and stuff. It was the Caesar cult, particularly with Augustus. They would build houses of worship. Songs would be sung to and about him. Fastest growing movement of faith. Songs of praise written about this person. Ten years before Jesus was born, um, the proconsul of Asia, Fabius Maximus, as you name your child, uh, proposed this idea that we should celebrate the birth of Augustus. He says, here's the script, it's hard to tell whether the birthday of the most divine Caesar is a matter of greater pleasure or benefit. We could justly hold it to be the equivalent of the beginning of all things. So interesting. And he has given a different aspect to the whole world, which blindly would have embraced its own destruction if Caesar had not been born for the common benefit of all. This guy's really trying to get in. The response of the assembly back to Fabius Whereas the providence which divinely ordered our lives, created with zeal and munificence, there's the quote of the year, uh, the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus for the benefaction of mankind, sending us and those after us a what? Savior, who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas Caesar Augustus, when he appeared, exceeded the hopes of all who anticipated good tidings, and whereas the birthday of the God for the whole world the beginning of good tidings through his, Caesar Augustus's, coming. What is Luke doing when he says, in those days, that guy was in charge? What is he doing? He takes a census, or he has a census like everybody's got to go do the thing. Now, a census was normally done for taxes, military reasons, or uh, a head count. Just we want to know how many people live in our empire. Financially, it would have amounted to next to nothing for the empire. It's very, a very short, uh, there's, the cost per head was very little. And in the Roman world, the Israelites were exempt from military service, and so it wasn't really about that. But what Luke is telling us here is, um, this is yet again another reminder to the Israelites and, of course, to all of the assembled nations within the empire, the assimilated nations within the empire. It's a reminder to them that, once again, they don't run their lives. Someone else is running their lives. And so in just one sentence in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Luke is giving us a picture of the sovereignty that this man had over the world, uh, which really doesn't seem at first 
that important. And of course, Caesar Augustus at this point is a general term. I think the, I think the Caesar in power in the days of Jesus was uh, not Caesar Augustus, but Octavian. But what Luke is doing is painting a broader picture of the sovereignty of this empire, which again really doesn't seem all that important at first when connecting it to the birth of Jesus, but something is building here. It's like Luke is saying, here's the story of the world that Jesus was born into. It's a world that was living under the rule of someone with titles like the Son of God and Savior and the Prince of Peace, this ruler who brought all nations under his control. His influence is far-reaching. His name is famous. It's renowned. He's feared and yet worshipped as a god. But on this night, this is what Luke is doing here, on this night and in an unexpected place in an unexpected town, a different kind of Savior a real Savior, the real bringer of peace is born, calling every part of this Roman political divinity garbage in a serious question. I mean, Luke is, it's like a rap battle. Oh, yeah? Mm. He's saying, I know that this is the way it is, but it's really like this. Let's go on. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. This is another cultural marker that Luke is giving us. Shepherds weren't famous. They weren't renowned. They weren't worth it. In the farming culture, they were the bottom of the chain. Sometimes they owned small plots of land. They had their own sheep or whatever, but it was never enough to make the money they need or it was never adequate enough to support uh, raising a family. They were also victims, and this is partly or mostly the case, they were also victims of extremely high taxes in some places, over 90% of what people made then was taken away. So as a result, shepherds, like other professions at the time, but shepherds would often find extra work, uh, hire themselves out for evening jobs, or work extra hours, such as watching their flocks in the fields at night. So it was to them, and this is so interesting to me, in verse 8, I mean, it's like we get the picture here that this is the group of people that God first announces the birth of Jesus to, other than the parents, of course. But here we have the first set of people to hear that Jesus has been born. So where does the story begin? In verse 1, it begins with power, royalty. Where are we now? We're in the fields with shepherds, working extra hours, right? And the message, the first thing that the, 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 the shepherds hear from the angel is this right here. But the angel said to them, do not be what? Afraid. This, by the way, is the most often repeated command in the Bible. Don't be afraid, which is good. That's a good thing. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. So the command is not to be afraid, Again, an often repeated, the most repeated command in the Bible, and this is a good thing. But the message moves from not being afraid to this message of, if you look at it again, it's a good news, which is where we get the word gospel. And good news is, again, another way that emperors were announced, the coming of something good. And so this gospel means good news, and the good news that uh, the message gives us is that this is for all the people not for a select few, not for certain kinds. This is for the whole world. And so it's great joy for all the people. It's verified in the fact that God has chosen to announce his birth to the outsiders, shepherds. 
What's also interesting is that there's all sorts of fascinating connections with, and maybe this is next year, but um, the, David, the shepherd boy, being called in from the fields while he was watching sheep to be anointed the next king. And so God is like really piecing together this amazing narrative that's just completely underneath the radar from, other, from others. And if there was anyone who wanted to be the first to know that a new king was coming, you would think, and they would also think, that it would be the current king. Someone should have told me that a new king is coming, a new ruler, a new savior, a new prince of peace. And it would just seem obvious that the new king would come from someplace powerful, like Rome, or even uh, Jerusalem for that matter, but not in a small town outside of the occupied city of Jerusalem. And this may or may not matter, but it's still interesting. Religiously, you would think that something of this magnitude would have happened at least near or in the temple, the center of Jewish faith and practice, but it doesn't. It seems like a small matter, but it's just another indication, and this is Luke's point, of course, that this new world, this new creation is showing up in a radically different way than anyone could have ever imagined. And so Luke is building a narrative of it's not like this, but it's, it's actually like that. It's from darkness to light, from fear to joy, from fame to humility, from power to sacrifice, urban, small town, emperors, shepherds. This was not the way that it was supposed to happen. But it's another marker for us that Luke is pointing boldly to the universal implications of Jesus' birth. Mary, uh, in chapter 1, when she's singing the song, Mary's song, says, He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And so when God speaks to the shepherds in this magnificent way, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests, like breathing all that in, we have to figure out what kind of peace is God talking about. Because it must be different than we think. It must not be the same, or at least it must, must be larger than we can think. Because again, the whole story has been to this point, this is what you thought, but this is the way it is. And so this peace must be something else because it's not as though, uh, it doesn't take much intelligence to look around and go, well, Jesus was born supposedly to bring peace to the earth and to all men. And the truth is our world is still as violent now as it ever has been. In many cases, and this is what grieves the heart of God, in many cases, it's actually been Christianity that has created violence. So it's not as though Christ's coming put an end to all the struggle in the world. Amen? It's just not true. I remember sitting in uh, college. I guess that's what you say, you don't stand in college. I was sitting in college, and a professor wrote a number on the board 
and he turned uh, to us and said, does anyone know what this number represents? Right. It was a big number. I forgot the number, like a lot of college. And um, a lot of college, I don't remember. But we tried, we threw out stuff like, okay, um, is that the homeless population in the neighborhood of the college? Is that the number of drunk driving accidents each year? Is that teen suicides? What is it? And is a, again, it was a big number. And he said, this is the number of wars that are going on in our world right now. The ones that we know about. Peace. What is he talking about? On earth, peace to all men. Jesus said um, in John 14, verse 27, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. So here's an indication that it's not the same kind of peace that the world gives. Which again, up through the days of Jesus, peace came through force. It was force and might and power and fear that brought peace to regions and cities. And so in a way, Jesus is saying here, it's not the same. It doesn't work that way but it's not the same. And then he says, don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. Uh, Paul, I love this, Philippians 4, verse 7. I mean, it just doesn't get any more profound than this when he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. So there is, a, there is some of this that you and I will never fully define, and therefore we should be comfortable with that. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are the people that seem crazy when they say, I'm just at peace. And you're looking at their life, and it's just like chaos is orbiting their life. And you're like, eh. You're like, you're crazy. What are you drinking? What are you smoking? It just doesn't make sense. The peace of God was passes through all of that. In the uh, Isaiah text that we read earlier, like, for to us a child is born, the prince of peace, the word for peace in the Old Testament is the word shalom. Uh, it means flourishing in every dimension. In Jeremiah 29, the Israelites um, are in captivity in Babylon, and they wanted to be anywhere but in that city. They just wanted to get out. And God, through Jeremiah, speaks to them and says, actually, I want you to stay there, root down, raise your kids, work the land, work the jobs. And then he says, and I want you to seek the peace, the shalom of the city. In other words, you're there to make sure that there is peace and that it flourishes in every dimension, spiritually and physically, in a real sense. The peace that the Bible talks about has to do with putting things back together restoring what is broken, redeeming what has been lost. So part of the peace that Christ brings is in the restoration of all things. It's a big, it's a big mission. And how does that happen? Taking away any miraculous event, the Bible is very simple. It happens through you and through me. This is the call of the Scripture on everyone who calls himself a disciple right? To be bringers of shalom and restoration to the world in which we live. My son outgrew his bike a 
couple years ago, and for the last two years, just sat on the balcony of our, outside of our building. And I was going to throw it away, uh, and then I stumbled. I was in conversation with a guy a while back and heard about it and stumbled across this website for the Beltline Bike Shop right here in our city. And it's this shop that was started by a husband and a wife. They had moved into the Adair Park neighborhood, a very distressed uh, and stressful community. And they had moved in there with the mission of putting things back together. I think this photo is taken. That's in the park. Um, that park was some of the before pictures was unbelievable. But they, they moved in there simply to work their jobs and on the side. I think they kind of see it as their jobs are on the side and they're their life and their neighborhood is their mission. And so they moved in to restore what had been lost, which uh, had been community and safety and relationships. And the wife's on staff at a church, and the husband holds down a job during the week. And, um, but one of the ventures that they launched when they moved into the neighborhood was that they wanted to take old donated bikes and fix them up and give them to the children. Because they noticed that no one played outside. And so they just started getting bikes and fixing them up, and um, so my son and I loaded up his bike into my van, and we drove down there uh, recently. We walked into the shop, and please forgive me if this sounds um, stupid, but I walked into the shop, which is in the basement of this warehouse, and the, the train just runs right over top of it. And uh, she pulls the door, and I walk in, and it, you could just feel redemption, restoration. I know it's just bikes, but you've got to go with me. It's like, wow. And my son is holding his bike, and he's looking around. I think he's kind of like, ooh, this one for that one, you know. <laughs> but uh, we're in there, hundreds of bikes hanging on the walls, a few on the work stands getting ready to be given away. And the wife uh, asks my son, uh, Alden, do you know what we do here? And he said, yeah. And he told her. And then she was talking to me as he was sort of looking around. and Because uh, he had told her, my seat is broken. Because <laughs> he had pulled all the leather off. Because he has attention problems. <laughs> uh, and she said, it's okay. We have a, we have a barrel of seats. And um, so anyway. So she's talking to me and she said, uh, we've been able to give away over 200 bikes in our neighborhood to this day. And, um, but she said the greatest thing is that giving away bikes is simply a way for us to get to know people who have lost hope. The 13th century prayer of St. Francis of Assisi goes like this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Can I get some sort of amen in the room? Jesus said it this way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. To be called a son in the New Testament means that you take on the characteristics of something. Barnabas. Barnabas is the name that means the son 
of encouragement. So he's like an encourager. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you bring peace to the world, then you are like God. To bring peace, shalom, gives us the character of someone who belongs to God. So in a real sense, Luke, uh, all the way back in our birth story here, is announcing a new kind of kingdom, which Jesus will spend most of his ministry teaching about, this kingdom thing. And it's this, in this new kind of kingdom uh, that brings peace and shalom to the world that we live in, like na- our neighborhoods, our buildings, the blocks, the workspaces and communities. And this call to love your neighbor as yourself will become the driving force in this kingdom. But Luke is saying, this is what we're talking about. This peace on earth in part comes through you. But one more thing as we close. And if you've been around long enough, you know the phrase, as we close, doesn't mean anything. (laughs) This peace that rests on people that, again, the angels speak of, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. This is not just the peace that we get from uh, safe neighborhoods. There's a great quote by, because um, we often move for that reason. Oh no, the neighborhood's going to pack it up and go. And uh, Bob Lupton, who's a minister here in the inner city, says, this is, so, this is fantastic, relocation is not the same as restoration. That's not finding peace. Um, but it's the kind of peace that comes from not just safe neighborhoods, but it's the kind of peace that comes from, and this is so important, from knowing where we stand with God. See, this is the thing right here, because in this world, and we do this to a degree today for sure, but in the world in which Jesus lived, and of course before, every pagan religious practice was about pleasing your God, appeasing them, just keeping them happy. But in this story, God makes the first move and sends His Son into the world as a living picture of His undying and unwavering love for us. And instead of debating and worrying about whether or not my God is happy with me, the words of Jesus in John 3.16 are just so freeing. He just says, look, for God, so He already loved you. He loved the world, and He gave His one and only Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Son. And so the message God is, uh, and the message of God is in, in, in His Son being given as a sacrifice for our sins is a very big one, although sometimes we pass over that in the church because we're so familiar with it. But it is the heart of the Christmas story. The Christmas and Easter, they're deeply connected, born to die. Christmas is the beginning of this narrative of dying for the condition of the world. And so Christmas is sort of depressing. It's my fault. Christmas is my fault. It's great, it's joyous, and the angels are all the same. Don't, don't be afraid. It's an awesome story, but it didn't start there. And when I think about the magnitude of that kind of love and the depth of that kind of grace, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, I've shared with you on this stage in a, uh, some struggles that I had in my own faith. Uh, a, a friend of mine emailed me Saturday, yesterday, and said, hey, I just finished listening to your sermon on um, words that build, sermon on encouragement which happened months ago, and I was sort of uh, overwhelmed that someone listened in. But um, So I emailed him back, and I said, isn't that the one where I share like the top five struggles in my faith? 
And number one on that list was grace, the grace of God. Because I often fear that God would just tolerate me, which is kind of what you think you want, but it's not the same as grace. Tolerance often gets confused with grace. See, tolerance is when I just ignore it, allow it to happen, live and let live. Tolerance is about disconnecting from the responsibility of God to engage with my sin. But see, grace is different. Grace somehow stays connected to me, the sinner, vowing never to leave, while at the same time pushing me towards the right kind of life. See, tolerance just turns ahead, but grace comes to earth and dies on a cross. And that's hard for me, and I assume that's hard for you to really grasp the grace of God is not easy. Um, years ago at the church I was serving, we were so, I, I use the word blessed, I don't use that a lot, but I was blessed to sit and hear this man named um, Don Richardson speak in our service. Old guy, um, missionary, you know, when you hear that term like, oh gosh, slideshows and inappropriate photos, you know. But this guy's a rock star. I mean, he wrote a book called The Peace Child. Get it, just get it. And um, the book is basically about he and his family in uh, the 60s, early 60s. There were three of them, he and his wife and their son, I think he was six or seven. They moved to, um, to work among the Sawi tribe in New Guinea. And, um, of course, they went there to do ministry. They went there to work among the poor and whatever. But uh, when they were there, and this is kind of what his sermon was, but when they were there, he spent most of his time trying to find what he calls redeeming analogies in their culture, which means that there has to be something in their culture that points to the idea of grace. Every culture basically has something that goes, okay, that's an indicator of a universal thing called grace. But they spent years there and uh, said they just they could not find any, had to learn the language, uh, in fact, when he told the story of Jesus, Judas happened to be the hero to these people. So uh, he was like, well, this is an uphill battle. Um, but let me just raise the bar here for a moment. The three tribes they lived and worked among uh, were in constant conflict. And toward the end of his stay, a war broke out between all three. And uh, he, when he was describing this, I mean, it was like basically... I'm raising my child as bullets fly. And it was completely horrifying to hear what it was like to not just live there, but to raise their family there, and then at the same time time, try to serve these people. So he's in the middle of this, what feels like hell. And, uh, but what was interesting was that the people there, they loved the Richardson family because they had built a relationship with them. But even still, Uh, He and his family had made plans to leave (laughs) for obvious reasons, namely to save their own lives because it was that bad. And uh, they also, again, felt that their time was done there because it just wasn't, there were no connections. Kind of like when um, Paul left Athens in Acts 17, just sort of, it didn't work. This message of Jesus doesn't always work. So, they made plans to leave, and the, the tribes, the Sawi tribe people, did not want them to leave. And so they agreed to stop fighting. 
which is interesting. And I will never forget what he said next. I just, I'll read this to you. The way that they stopped a war in that community was through this discipline called the peace child. And it's when men would give their sons to their enemies. That's big. We got to get out of here. There's not even a redeeming analogy in this culture for grace, much less anything that points to the scriptures. How does the battle stop? I give my son to my enemy. He talked about how he saw one man literally walk to his enemy and hand him his own son. And then Richardson said this, if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. And Paul says it best in Romans when he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a God you can trust. If Jesus was God on earth, if Jesus came to lift the weight of the world's condition and sin, if Jesus came to bring peace on earth, if Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for my condition, if God gave His own Son to a world that could care less, that's a God who can be trusted. And where there is trust, there is peace. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. The peace that we bring, the peacemaking life, but most importantly, the peace of knowing where we stand with the God that we can trust. Amen? Welcome to week two of Advent. As we move closer to the manger, it just gets better and better. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a couple more songs, so if you would, just stand. And um, if you've heard anything today that you would like to talk about, pray about, I'll be down after the service up front, and uh, would would love to talk to you. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for um, today. Thank you for, the, for your word, um, which is so powerful and so interesting and so engaging and so true. And God, for thousands of years, your people have packed in places like this and just looked at it and retold it over and over and over. But God, I pray that something is new today, something is fresh a broader picture of what you were doing then and what you continue to do, calling us to not put the weight of everything on someone else's shoulders, but to put it on you, to let you carry our lives. God, go with us as we are instruments of peace in our world and in our neighborhoods, in our relationships. And God, give us the peace of knowing where we stand with you, that you so love the world that you gave your only son, to us, really, just enemies to you. And so we trust you, and in that trust we find the peace that transcends all understanding. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.